This is They Create Worlds, episode 204, Exploring the Mass Effect. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alec. Hello. I am Commander Shepard, and this is my favorite podcast episode on the Citadel. Now, is this the only podcast uh, Commander Shepard is endorsing as his favorite, or are there a few hundred others that have uh, have gotten the same endorsement? That all depends on how much money I'm being given. <laughs> or how many Paragon points, perhaps. Perhaps. That's right. Today, we are doing something that is unusual for us, and actually doing an episode entirely contained within the 21st century of all crazy things, and looking at the Mass Effect trilogy of games in what, at this point, I am confident, as I am always confident, will be a two-part episode. We will see if this is hubris as normal, or uh, whether it devolves into three. You'll have to wait till the end of the next episode to find out, but you can begin placing your bets now. Big money, big money, big money. I'm giving 10 to 1 odds on three episodes. 10 to 1 odds on three episodes. (laughs) Uh, That's right, but this is a series that is very near and dear to my heart. When I bought an Xbox 360, which I didn't buy uh, right at launch, this was the game I bought with it, was Mass Effect. I have been in love with the trilogy ever since. Then there was this Andromeda thing, and there were issues. But that's not what this episode is about. This is about the classic trilogy starring uh, Commander Shepard and his Normandy crew as they save the galaxy from the Reapers. We often don't do more modern things just because there's not a lot of context yet or a lot of historical sources available to be able to talk about these things in an intelligent manner. Of course, time is continuing to march on, and these games are getting older and older. The first Mass Effect is 2007, so it's over a decade old at this point, which doesn't seem possible, but that's a a different issue. Stupid, inevitable march of time. (laughs) And there have been a decent number of sources out there that have covered the creation of the series in one way or another. Jeff Keighley's final hours of Mass Effect 3, which, even though it was written at the time the Mass Effect 3 was coming out, delves into the history of the other games as well. There have been oral histories online that have been done, most notably one that was done by, uh, well, it's on Tech Radar's site now, but I think they absorbed it from somewhere else because they've absorbed a lot of things from a lot of somewhere else's. But There are a few sources out there that have gone into enough depth that we can kind of combine these together as well as provide our typical broader look at where things fit into industry trends and uh, do something intelligent on the series because it really is an important series. It was one of several games that came out, the original I'm talking about now, that came out in this kind of period, the early to mid-period of that console generation, including Uncharted and others that really started to bring a cinematic quality to video games that hadn't really been there before just because the technology wasn't there. It was revolutionary in a lot of ways, and good games in my opinion, but that of course is subjective. So yeah, Mass Effect. 
So, we're going to have to go into the stars, save humanity and all sentient life. How do we start? With the rise and fall of EA? <laughs> no, I mean, EA isn't really central to this story. Though Mass Effect, in a way, becomes central to EA's story when all the fans get mad. But that's, uh, that's a part two problem. <laughs> this really starts, as so many things in science fiction do, with Star Wars. It's all Star Wars' fault. Specifically with one of the most beloved RPGs of all time, Knights of the Old Republic. Yes, I remember playing that on occasion. <laughs> yes, many people did. The Mass Effect trilogy, of course, was done by BioWare, the Edmonton, Canada-based company known for its immersive RPGs with great story, great characters, and all of that stuff. We're not going to go into the history of BioWare in this episode. Certainly a topic that deserves its own episode, or, you know, five, whatever we do, sometime. But suffice it to say that the company really made its reputation with its isometric 2D real-time-with-pause RPGs, particularly Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2. It was this success that caused LucasArts to approach them about doing a similar RPG set in the Star Wars universe, as they were doing so many more uh, Star Wars games as the prequels were coming out. Of course, everyone at BioWare were huge Star Wars fans, because if you're of a certain age and you're into this whole sci-fi fantasy thing, you're a Star Wars fan. Pretty much. I mean, obviously, not everything's for everybody, but it captured the imagination of a generation. So they got to work on this thing, but they decided that it was time to take their RPGs into the third dimension. Now, they were also working on Neverwinter Nights at the same time, which did the same thing. But they made the jump to three-dimensional worlds, polygonal graphics, 3D characters, still keeping kind of that real-time with pause action, but taking it into that third dimension and having an even greater emphasis on story and setting and all of this kind of stuff. Again, we're not going to do a full episode here on Knights of the Old Republic, because that's definitely a game that can be the subject of its own episode down the line. But you don't get to Mass Effect without going through Knights of the Old Republic, because this is where the majority of the team that made Mass Effect really got their start. It was kind of a combination of the people that had been there since the founding of the company and had worked on the Baldur's Gate series mixed in with some new blood, which were the people that would really move on to bring Mass Effect to life. The most important of those people, and well, I mean, shouldn't say most important because everyone's important in a team effort like this, but the leader of the effort to create uh, Mass Effect, the person who made this whole thing happen, really got his start in game design on Knights of the Old Republic, and that is one Mr. Casey Hudson. Casey Hudson is an interesting guy in the video game industry. He is a true polymath, by which I mean he can do so many different things. He's a great programmer, he can code, but he's also a great artist, and not just a great 2D artist, but also a great 3D artist. 
that's a very rare combination of skills to be really good at programming, really good at 2D art, and really good at 3D art. He's probably one of those people who would really excel back in the early days of computer games where the coder, the game designer, and the artist is all the same person. Absolutely. He really would be. Of course, he's Canadian. Most of the uh, protagonists in our story here are Canadian because BioWare is a Canadian company. He's the son of a director of finance for a TV station in Canada that just happens to be the TV station where the show SCTV was being filmed back in the 80s. Are you familiar with SCTV? I am not familiar with that. It is a skit show, kind of in that sense like Saturday Night Live, but it's not live like SNL. It is a skit show about a fictional television station, SCTV, that was put together by Canadian members of the Second City Improv Troupe. And so this is where such individuals as John Candy, Rick Moranis, and Eugene Levy got their start in television and became stars. Uh, Catherine O'Hara as well. Martin Short was on the show for a while. Uh, Harold Ramis also got his start as a writer on SCTV and then occasionally doing some acting on it. So most of the legends of 80s comedy that were from Canada got their start on SCTV. It's a hugely influential show, but had more of a cult following in the United States. I mean, it was aired in the United States, but it was bigger in Canada. And of course, uh, some of the people on it made the jump to Saturday Night Live and of course into other comedy projects. Just as an aside, and this is completely random, but you know, tangents, it's what we do here. If you've never seen SCTV, you don't truly understand the genius of Rick Moranis. Because in all of his American projects, whether it be Ghostbusters, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Spaceballs, all the classic stuff you remember, he always just plays this kind of wimpy, dweeby kind of guy. That's kind of his stock character. But he has an incredible range. If you go watch him on SCTV, of course he plays that character because he's good at it, but he can disappear into all sorts of characters. And it's kind of sad that in his kind of mainstream American career, he didn't get to show off that range in the, in the same way. Contrast that with someone like John Candy, who is amazingly funny, but, you know, John Candy is John Candy is John Candy in everything he does. And it's wonderful, but it's, it just doesn't have the same range. So I don't know why I'm talking about SCTV in such depth on an episode about Mass Effect, but, you know, Here this is are. what you get. This is what you get when you are foolish enough to listen to They Create Worlds. I would recommend it. I enjoy SCTV. It's out there, here and there. I will hunt something down and throw it in the show notes. <laughs> Yeah, but the important thing about SCTV here is not so much what was going on in the skits, but what was going on in the design, because it fascinated young Casey Hudson. I mean, the sets weren't special. They weren't any different from any other sets out there, but he was just amazed at how you could create a whole space that looked pretty realistic in front of the cameras, but it's really doors that lead to nowhere and flats made to look like full buildings. And it's just, he was fascinated by that design. He got really into building things himself out of anything he could get his hands on as a kid, whether that was Legos or model kits or anything else. 
from there, he got interested, really interested into computers. He got a VIC-20, the uh, Commodore home computer that was so revolutionary for being so cheap at the time and providing solid entertainment, and taught himself to program it by getting books, programming books out of the local library. We're not talking about a teenage coder here, like we so often talk about. We're talking about a young kid. We're talking about somebody whose age is in the single digits at the time that he is starting to program on this VIC-20. In the third grade, for his science fair project, he took his VIC-20 into school with a program that he created that was a very simple animation of a bird flying across the screen. Just three frames of animation. Wings up, wings down, flat. You know, this is a third grader. I was nine to ten years old in third grade where the cutoff is, uh, we were on the older end. So you kind of have a range of eight to 10-year-olds in third grade. So that's the age we're talking about when we're talking about he did this animation, which is uh, pretty impressive for a third grader, I would say. So impressive that the judge immediately asked him, Okay, did you really do this, or did Daddy help you? (laughs) Which is a logical question to ask of a kid that age doing something that complex. So, kind of annoyed by this, our little third grade Casey deleted the program on the VIC-20 right in front of the judge and re-inputted it right then and there to show him that, yes, I do know how computer programming works. That's pretty impressive, especially typing it that fast. Yes. He subsequently got first prize at the science fair. Yeah, if he didn't at that point, the judge would look like a jerk. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you can't blame the judge. I mean, who who's expecting, you know, a nine or ten year old to uh, understand programming well enough to do this animation? You know, 20 print, go to 10, or, or whatever it is. I don't program. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just a, a simple basic command or two, but this is a full animation being done on a VIC-20. However, despite the fact that he was a programming prodigy and a talented artist, what he really wanted to be was a fighter pilot. I'm having flashbacks to a certain wild bill here. (laughs) Yes, though, uh, in this case, his inspiration for that was the thing that made an entire generation want to be fighter pilots in the same way that uh, Star Wars influenced a a whole generation. I am, of course, referring to Top Gun. Ah. He was also a big fan of the movie The Right Stuff which was about the early astronauts, the early formation of NASA, and also had a lot of stuff about Chuck Yeager and test pilots and all that as well, since uh, all the early astronauts were drawn from the test pilot cohort. So he was really fascinated with flying. So as soon as he was able, when he was older, he joined uh, local air cadets and, and learned how to fly, not jet fighters, obviously, Cessna 172 aircraft, as he told G.F. Keeley, Kylie, I don't know how he pronounces its name, the Game Awards guy. I could look up how to pronounce his name, but it's more funny for me to ramble like this instead, so this is what you get. So yeah, we're keeping this to two episodes, right? I mean, we've already talked about SCTV and... Yeah, two episodes. Two episodes. Place your bets now. And we're almost to 20 minutes of raw recording. Ah, well, it'll it'll be fine. Place your bets now. Place your bets now. 
The odds will be updated periodically throughout the episode as Alex's tangents get longer and longer. <laughs> We're up to five to one now. <laughs> Once he started flying, he did realize that, yes, indeed, this is something he enjoys, and he continued to be on that path. He went to the University of Alberta, majoring in mechanical engineering. Good, solid major for someone who wants to fly, since there's a lot of mechanical engineering going on in those planes. And he kind of got distracted. Kind of like Will Wright, who is also very much a polymath. He had all these things he was doing on the side. He was into music. He was into designing things. He was into computer programming. You know, he was kind of getting sidetracked. He also had a girlfriend. Girlfriends can be very distracting. Can definitely speak from experience there. He kind of forgot about the whole studying thing, which is kind of important particularly if you're doing, say, mechanical engineering, which is one of the more uh, complex majors out there. I'm sure, I mean, this isn't in any of the sources, but I'm sure being such a smart kid that he never had to study in secondary school and elementary and high school. That's actually a trap that a lot of people who are very intelligent fall into because usually in a grade school or high school situation, They are the big fish. They really understand their stuff. And because of the way the education system in the United States is set up, by and large, it is easy for them to just breeze through. It's like, oh, I just picked this thing up really, really easy. I fell into this trap a bit myself. Uh huh. It's easy for me to pick up things. I barely need to do any homework because I can pick it up in the classroom really, really easy. You transition from that to a university or college setting That's the end result of all of these different high school feeding into that. And there's a whole bunch of big, smart people coming into that system. Commiserately, they really make it much, much more challenging. So you do have to put in more effort and more effort than you're used to because you spent 8 to 12 years of your life just breezing through school. Oh, I just need to attend the class. I'll pick it up. I'll be fine on the test. I might get one or two questions wrong. But who cares? I'm going to get an A anyway. Exactly. By the end of his sophomore year, he uh, basically flunked out of the University of Alberta. Fun fact, you kind of need a college degree to be a fighter pilot. Really? They don't just let any old schlub uh, get behind the stick of those things. Who knew? He was very directionless for about a year. Now, he didn't lack for an ability to kind of vaguely support himself because he was a smart guy. He had a series of kind of odd jobs. Again, according to Keeley's Final Hours of Mass Effect 3, where a lot of our uh, material comes from today, he worked at a convenience store. He programmed software for an irrigation company because, you know, he still had the programming skill. And that is something that, especially in those days, you often didn't need a degree to get some kind of work in, you know, if you just knew how to code really well. From there, he created his first program that he sold himself, which was called Landscape Architect, which he sold for $120 online. Again, this program, I I don't know much about it. I mean, from the name, you can tell it's about, you know, modeling your landscaping. This, again, just goes to show that he has the strong grasp of the programming and the strong grasp of three-dimensional graphics, which is what you would need to create something like this yourself. He did this random stuff for a year, and then his parents and his girlfriend were like, um, you know, 
maybe you uh, should think a little more about your future. So he went back to the University of Alberta. He reapplied himself to his work, and he did graduate with that engineering degree. He did go back and finish school. Unfortunately, by the time he graduated, the uh, Canadian Air Force was under a hiring freeze. He could not join the Air Force. He was still kind of interested in this, but he knew he would have to at least do something in the interim again. He was a good programmer, and then on the news, he saw a profile of a local company. He went to the University of Alberta. Edmonton is uh, in Alberta. A local company called BioWare, making video games. He decided to apply there and switch his focus to this whole video game thing, which he liked, and he liked programming and and all of this stuff, so it kind of made sense. He was hired as a technical artist. Did that job for a little bit. You know, he didn't really know anything about game design. I mean, he liked games. He was a good programmer, good artist, didn't really know anything about game design, but he did the whole artist thing for a little bit on a couple of projects. Then they handed him the keys to the kingdom on Knights of the Old Republic and made him the project director. KOTOR was a big uh, collaborative effort, as many Bioware games were in this period, but he was one of a couple of people that were really driving the overall design of that game. Yeah, that's the beginning of our friend Casey Hudson. So they do KOTOR. KOTOR is very successful. KOTOR is very beloved. LucasArts wants a sequel to KOTOR, quite logically. The catch is they want a sequel in a year. Yeah. That ain't happening. Well, it does sort of happen. With lots and lots and lots and lots of cuts. Yeah. Again, we're not here to talk about KOTOR 2. We've had enough tangents already. KOTOR 2 is not done by Bioware. It's done by Obsidian. And, oh my god, I love what that game could have been so much, Jeffrey. I remember. I love the ideas behind KOTOR 2. But yeah, because of that year deadline, it just doesn't fully come together. Like, I mean, it's literally released in an unfinished state. Not just, oh, we would have liked, uh, you know, another six months to fix bugs. It's like, uh, no, we would have liked another six months to actually, like, write the ending. (laughs) We like endings. (laughs) Endings help. Endings may come up in a Mass Effect context in part two. Just a little tiny bit. (laughs) So, anywho... Because there was going to be such a tight turnaround time, BioWare, which is, of course, known for its incredibly high-quality polished uh, games by this point, like Baldur's Gate 2 and uh, Knights of the Old Republic, does not want to turn around and do a second game in just a year. So they turned down the opportunity. However, some of the core team members of Knights of the Old Republic, including Casey Hudson, really want to take what they learned doing that game, which, as I said, was their real transition to 3D, and create another epic sci-fi in a similar vein, but for really the first time in BioWare's history, do so in their own universe that they create themselves rather than being dependent on a franchise. Now, they had done, I mean, their first game was in their own world, but that wasn't an RPG. Shattered Steel, it was a mech game. 
their RPGs had all been these D&D products or now this Star Wars game. So Hudson and the others really wanted to spread their wings and create their own universe. In September of 2003, Context Remember Mass Effect came out in 2007. So we're talking about four years before the game was released. In September 2003, Casey Hudson had a lunch meeting at a local Greek restaurant with the doctors, the founders of BioWare, Ray Mazukia and Greg Zeschuk, and pitched them on his idea for what he called at the time SFX. He created a document. Don't have that document, but Keeley's book does quote from the first line of the document. So this was the start of his pitch. With online capabilities and gameplay features that will redefine the genre, SFX will become a mainstream phenomenon and a must-have game for the Xbox 2. Because the 360 doesn't even exist yet, you know, so that's why he's calling it an Xbox 2. Microsoft hasn't shared (laughs) what the next Xbox is going to be yet. So that was his ambition. That's, uh, you know, that's just a, a minor little small ambition. Right? No. Just, uh... No. No. That's <laughs> like, I am assuming we're going to have this new hardware in place right now that we're going to develop for. And if there's a delay in the hardware coming out, we're screwed. If there's a delay in us understanding how the technology might change, we're screwed. Um, yeah. Not just that, but creating an original IP. Yes. At the same time as they're redefining RPG gameplay and, oh, we're going to make this massive hit. And we have to put multiplayer in it, too, because why not? Well, at least they dropped the multiplayer. (laughs) Yeah, though, it seems like it wasn't really going to be multiplayer in the sense of even like a Baldur's Gate where multiple people could move the characters around. The multiplayer aspect was going to be more a trading aspect. As you found items and gear and whatnot in the world, you'd be able to trade with other players on Xbox Live because this was always going to be a game focused on a singular individual. So it's it's not like someone was going to be uh, what became Commander Shepard and two other people were going to play squad mates or whatever. It was just a trading game that was kind of on top of everything else. Not only did he say that this is what we're going to do, redefine the genre and become a must-have game, we are going to be a trilogy. Right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, he said it was going to be a trilogy. So we're just going to go balls to the wall, every single thing that we can do, assuming that we can actually accomplish all of this. Yes. It was uh, shocking, to say the least. According, again, to the final uh, hours of Mass Effect 3, Ray Muzukia, Muzika, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I could look that up too, but uh, people can have fun making fun of me and my crazy pronunciations, so that's okay was so shocked that he didn't pay attention to what he was doing and burned his tongue on some hot soup because he was paying so little attention to what he was shoving in his mouth that it's like, oh, ow, that hurt. They were stunned, but BioWare was an ambitious company. I mean, this is the company that made Baldur's Gate 2 and Knights of the Old Republic. It's not like they're just some shoestring outlet that's barely hanging on with budget software. This is an ambitious company run by ambitious people. 
The founders have long wanted to have their own IP. They didn't want to just spend their whole lives being dependent on other people's IP. And this seemed like a good way to try to get into that because it seemed like Casey had a solid idea of where he wanted to go. And of course, he had helped lead the KOTOR project, which had been a great success. So he had some uh, street cred, if you will, as well. They greenlit it and allowed him and a group of individuals that were core to the creation of Knights of the Old Republic to start figuring out what this thing might look like. Even at this time, they figured that whatever they did was going to release in 2007. First of all, they knew it would be a few more years before Microsoft released their next-generation console, and they did want to do this on the next generation with the next-generation technology. They did not want to do it on current technology. So they knew that that would take a while anyway, and they figured it would take a while to do this project right. So they greenlit it with the hope of having something ready to go by 2007. They very quickly lined up a publisher in Microsoft, which needed product to drive adoption of its Xbox platform, which had been crushed by Sony in the previous generation. Having something like this from the makers of KOTOR as an exclusive to the Xbox was very appealing, so Microsoft signed on as the publisher. This is when BioWare was still an independent developer not a part of EA yet, so those kinds of things could happen. They begin, and uh, who is they? Well, it's a variety of people. It's Casey Hudson, of course, who is going to be the leader of this project. Another key person at this stage was a guy named Preston Watamaniuk, who was another one of these guys that came into video games in a very kind of strange way. He got a political science degree in college couldn't get a job, and spent six years as a garbage collector in Edmonton. He was a massive D&D fan, a massive computer game fan, got addicted to StarCraft, but obviously was kind of overqualified for the whole garbage collector thing, and it was kind of hard work as well, so he told his friends to always be on the lookout if they could see something better for him. One of his friends went to work for BioWare, so Watamaniuk was intrigued by the fact that they made D&D games because he had been an avid D&D fan since the age of 11. So he went and uh, interviewed, and even though he had no experience at all with making games, in the 90s you could still do this, he was hired on because he was an avid game player. They figured that the rest would figure itself out. He's the lead designer on Mass Effect. Another very important person is Drew Karpishan, who was the lead writer on Knights of the Old Republic and would also be the lead writer on the first two Mass Effect games. One of the things that set BioWare apart is they were one of the first companies, not the very first, but one of the first companies to actually hire writers for their games. Obviously, games have had writing for some time now, but usually it's the designers or the programmers or whoever else that are always doing the writing rather than having a dedicated writer. BioWare went out of its way to actually hire writers to make their plots and their characters and everything that much more memorable. Drew Karpishan at the time was in graduate school. He was getting a master's degree in English, so he had some writing chops. 
had been working as a furniture truck driver as well. All these people, garbage collector, furniture truck driver, convenience store clerk, slash irrigation software programmer, quite a ragtag group, but all much smarter and much more capable than their jobs suggest. And I mean, Karpishan was doing that, I think, to make ends meet while he was pursuing his education. He was in the middle of his master's degree in English when he saw a notice from Wizards of the Coast that they were looking for writers for their Forgotten Realms novels. The Forgotten Realms novels were a big business. Uh, the main reason why the Forgotten Realms setting became so integral to what D&D does, so much so that it's the core setting of D&D now, is because very early on they had a lot of success with novels set in the Forgotten Realms universe. And so there was kind of a synergy there. They would keep promoting and expanding the Forgotten Realms uh, universe in the RPG because the novels were so popular and, and all of this. So they were looking for a new wave of writers for Forgotten Realms books, which was very lucrative. You know, another guy, he likes D&D. It's like, yeah, I'll apply for this. I know how to write. I like D&D. He got the job. So he was in the middle of writing his first novel for Wizards of the Coast when he saw information about Bioware looking for writers for a D&D game they were working on. This, of course, being Baldur's Gate 2. So then he was like, okay, well, you know, they need writers. They're local. I'm already writing a D&D novel for Wizards of the Coast. That'll probably give me a leg up if I apply to write for a D&D game. So he applied to BioWare and got hired as a writer, worked on Baldur's Gate 2, and then, as I said, became the lead writer on Knights of the Old Republic, giving up on the master's degree along the way. Didn't need that anymore. He had found what he needed without the advanced degree. So he would be the lead writer of Mass Effect. Rounding out this early group, I don't know if this is quite everybody, so if I miss anyone, sorry, but the other kind of core members of this original exploratory team were Derek Watts, an artist who became the uh, art director on Mass Effect, and then a programmer by the name of David Faulkner. So this was kind of the core that started fooling around with what this project could be. Obviously, the team will grow greatly as it goes along. They took the first year of what was projected to be a three-and-a-half-year journey just figuring out what they wanted to do, what they wanted this world to be. They knew it was going to be sci-fi. They knew that it was going to be cinematic. One thing that they really wanted to do, that Hudson really wanted to do, is make an RPG that actually felt like controlling the characters in a movie. Because if you look at RPGs from this era, whether it's Knights of the Old Republic or it's the Elder Scrolls games of the time, uh, Morrowind uh, particularly, or even some of the stuff coming out of uh, Japan, like your Final Fantasy Tens, the graphics had gotten to the point where you could make characters that look decently human, or a given value of decently human, but they couldn't emote much. Sometimes you had lip syncing, sometimes you didn't. You did have some animation and some very basic gesturing, but they tended to be very, very awkward, basic, jerky maneuvers. Casey Hudson, I think, in one interview compared it to more controlling a puppet or a marionette on strings rather than feeling like you're controlling a real character. 
there was a little bit of facial movement. You know, the, the lips would generally always move, just not always in sync with the dialogue. There would usually be some blinking, but there wouldn't be a lot going on in the face. The face would basically stay in one state. I mean, this was all just down to kind of the technology of the time. It's it's not that people were inept at doing animation or art. It's just they were doing the best with the tools that they had. So it was felt that it was kind of hard to get attached in a way to some of these characters. Now, people still did get attached to characters in this era. I mean, my God, people got attached to Aerith in Final Fantasy VII, and outside of uh, cutscenes, she was Lego blocks. You know, it's not like you couldn't grow attached to characters, but they didn't feel that real. They didn't feel that cinematic. They wanted to cross that divide. You know, there were very few games that were. Some action games did a little bit, but even if you look at something like the Grand Theft Auto games of of the era, by which I mean 3, Vice City, and San Andreas, the trilogy on the PlayStation 2, they have a little more going on in terms of camera movements and gestures. We talked very much about how the Housers loved that cinematic stuff when we did our Grand Theft Auto look. They had a little more of that going on, but the characters were still very blocky and the gestures were still very rudimentary, even if they were a little better. Resident Evil 4 had some pretty good stuff going on in terms of more realistic gestures and whatnot. But You know, that's an action game that's taking place over a very compressed time period, and most of that work is being done in cutscenes rather than in ordinary gameplay. And of course, in cutscenes, you can get away with having better, more elaborate animations and expressions because you're not worrying about the gameplay engine, you know, slowing to a halt. RPGs didn't have that luxury. You had some pre-rendered cutscenes, but there's way too much story and way too much dialogue. You can't do all of it in cutscenes. You have to do some of it in engine. In engine just turned out to mostly be a couple of characters standing around, no real camera movement other than switching back and forth to see the faces of the of the various characters, and only the most rudimentary of gestures. They wanted something that had actual camera work more akin to what you would see in a movie. Now, we're not talking about, you know, the most amazing camera work you've ever seen. We're not talking about Star Wars level of camera work with all sorts of crazy cuts and fades and wipes and whatnot, but still a more dynamic camera that is not always just cutting back and forth between two talking heads. They wanted better animations, a little more facial movement, and then combining all of that with really high quality voice acting as a way of trying to get this more cinematic. The other thing that they also wanted, and we mentioned this a little bit with their pitch line, what was Hudson's pitch is that this would become a must-have mainstream event game on the Xbox Two. RPGs are very beloved by the people that love RPGs. Baldur's Gate 2 was very beloved, very successful. KOTOR was very beloved, very successful. But they are not quite mainstream especially in this time period. Mainstream is fast action. Mainstream is not fiddling around with spell slots or force powers. They did a very good job of making those games feel dynamic with their real-time with pause gameplay. Well, it's not even real-time with pause. It's turn-based, but it unfolds in a way that feels real-time because everybody just keeps taking their turns in succession without end until you pause the game. So it feels like it's real-time, but it's really turn-based. 
He knew that they would need something that was more action-oriented if it was going to be a mainstream success, which was part of their goal. He figured they needed a middle ground between Knights of the Old Republic, which was their first RPG, which had a lot of ranged weapon combat. Obviously, it also had a lot of lightsaber combat. Between that and Halo, which is just a plain, flat-out shooter. They basically came up with the idea of doing a shooting game, third-person over-the-shoulder shooting game, where the results were largely governed by RPG mechanics. So you would have levels, you would have abilities, you would have skills that needed to be improved in order to do more damage, be more accurate, etc., But everything would unfold in true real-time, not kind of the fake real-time of KOTOR. You would actually be moving your character around like in a shooter. You would be acquiring targets and firing at things like a shooter, and they would make a cover system very important to the game to give it more of that shooter feel. In this, I think, according to Hudson, they were kind of really inspired by Deus Ex, which was a game that combined a lot of action and RPG elements back at the beginning of the decade. So that's where they were going kind of in terms of gameplay. But then they had to decide, what do we want this world to be? Because they were going to be creating their own IP really the very first time, for all practical purposes, because the earlier original game that BioWare did, it it didn't have a lot of depth of thought on what the universe was like. So this was really going to be their first original IP. They wanted it to be memorable, and they wanted it to be well-defined. So like I said, they took their first year just thinking about what this is going to be. It's going to be sci-fi, sure. It's going to be an action-shooting game with RPG, strong RPG elements, sure. But what's the setting? Do we want it to be interstellar, or do we want it to take place on a single planet? Do we want this to be a universe that has aliens in it, or is this going to be a universe where it's just humans? And if you do just humans, is it humans and robots? Yeah, exactly. Do we want time travel in the game? What sci-fi kind of tropes or sci-fi standards do we want in the game? If we do faster than light travel, do we do that via some sort of warp drive, some sort of jump drive, some sort of hyperspace drive? Or are there sort of like shipping lanes where you have to go through a gate of some sort in order to jump between two spots? If we do do gates, how are those gates constructed at different locations? Do you have to send out like an automated thing to go do that? Is there faster-than-light communication? Mm Mm-hmm, exactly. They spent a lot of time defining that, and they did decide that they wanted it to be interstellar and that they wanted there to be aliens. In this, Hudson was really, really inspired by one of his favorite games as a kid, the EA game Starflight, which was kind of this really open-ended RPG that was set in this huge universe you could explore. It was essentially a sandbox game before people really thought of games in that term. And he, he loved this idea of being able to go out and explore a large galaxy and discover things within that galaxy in addition to whatever plot was going on. So they did decide, largely influenced by Starflight, to make it this grand interstellar game. Then they really started getting down to the nuts and bolts. Uh, The original Mass Effect, it drifts as time goes on, but the the original Mass Effect is really hard sci-fi. 
for those that don't know, what we mean when we say hard sci-fi is sci-fi that as much as humanly possible strives for realism in its future technologies. That you have an understanding of how everything works and the way everything works is based on current theories in physics and not just, oh, you know, I want them to be able to travel between systems so they have a hyperdrive and go into hyperspace. Star Wars is kind of on the other end. It's the Star Trek versus Star Wars thing. Star Trek is hard sci-fi. There's harder sci-fi than Star Trek, uh, much harder, because especially in the 60s show, it wasn't quite as well-defined. But Star Trek is a popular example of a harder sci-fi, and then Star Wars is the example of of a real soft sci-fi that's really more space fantasy, or science fantasy rather than science fiction, where you have all this cool technology, but they don't really concern themselves very often with how it works. You just kind of accept it's there. The first Mass Effect takes a very hard sci-fi approach, and uh, Drew Carpishin, of course, is a big part of defining that as the writer. Hudson is the and Watamaniak is a project lead and the designer. They're all kind of working together to define that. They decide that they want it to be in the near future rather than the far future, And they keep everything very grounded and realistic, and they just decide on this one element, this element zero, which allows you to change the mass of objects. Element zero, obviously, is something that doesn't actually exist, and you can't just use a special element to suddenly change the mass of objects. But if you accept that element zero exists and can affect these mass changes, pun intended, then most of the other world building in the game makes sense based on scientific principles. Because the way FTL travel works, the way technology works and all of that is based on the raising and lowering of mass. Other than the fact that you can't just snap your fingers and raise or lower mass, everything else is following laws of physics as we understand them today, essentially. A lot of the really good, hard sci-fi things have this element. They have one fanciful element that is the thing that allows for everything else to build upon it. Element zero is Mass Effect. Some sort of other scientific breakthrough, alien intervention, whatever, that just allows for everything else to come into its own. That just allows you to do all this wonderful storytelling and interesting things and gets you to the point where you start understanding hey, there's a lot more complexity here than I would have ever thought for some sort of space-fighting thing. We think of Star Wars where, yeah, we're just going to do effectively space-slash-naval combat in space. It's awesome. Yay! World War II in space. World War II (laughs) in space, yes. The scary thing is with how light works, with how general relativity works, Fighting in space is a lot more complicated because if you actually have a fighter in space where you have that lack of atmosphere, where you run into the problem of, I've seen this in some hard sci-fi, what they call the wall, where they can only go to probably about 0.4C, 0.3C, and C in this case is the speed of light. The reason for that is because if you go too much past that, then there's enough time dilation that you're spending so much time going faster to get to the bad guy that the bad guy just goes, I'm no longer there. 
you come back and you go, well, 50 minutes has passed, but the fight was over 10 minutes ago. <laughs> you run into that kind of problem. So you have to keep that in mind when you have that kind of faster than light or near, as I like to term it, true sublight speed, mm -hmm. where you can accelerate and decelerate fast enough to get to some fraction of C that is higher than we can at our current technology level. So you get really interesting things where I've seen sci-fi stories where there's these ships that come out of whatever their faster than light travel is into a system. They're far away from that system, and they're analyzing and moving in. It takes 10, 20 minutes for that light to get to the observation post on the system that's being attacked. That gives them 10 to 20 more minutes of planning and analyzing what the defenses are in order to do their attack. And then the person who's doing the defending, is they're on the back foot there, effectively, because the enemy ship has come in. They're already in the system for a full 20 minutes. It gets really complicated really fast. Long story short. The interesting thing and one of the things that really drew me in to Mass Effect is even though the game's a shooter, I mean, anything that goes on in space is basically all cutscene. Even though it's a third-person shooter on the ground, they did so much background. You know, they explained entirely how space combat works in that world. Even though you never engage in space combat, that the only space combat happens in cutscenes. They put a lot of background into how travel works, how combat works, how communication works, how everything works. Because they spent a whole year where they weren't even building a game. They were just building concepts. The other thing that they did is they, you know, they started defining their alien species. Not going to go into too much detail on that. But, you know, the concept artists went kind of wild. Uh, one of the, the early concepts was just a dinosaur holding a gun. That eventually morphed into the Krogan species. They also knew that they wouldn't have the budget or the art assets to be able to create both males and females of every species in large numbers. If you played the Mass Effect games, you know that in the first couple of games, there are no female Turians. There are essentially no female Krogan, very, very few female Salarians, some of the alien races. And so they created the Asari as an all-female species specifically because they knew otherwise there was going to be a real gender imbalance in the game amongst the non-human races. The other thing they weren't sure of is they weren't sure whether they would be able to have their alien races really emote very well. Again, this is the one of the earliest times that we're starting to really use motion capture and uh, more advanced animation techniques to portray characters in a more cinematic way. And they knew that that technology existed to get humans into a video game in a better way than they'd been portrayed before. But they didn't know how this was going to work with their aliens because they're coming up with completely new creatures. I mean, Salarians and Krogan are going to animate completely differently from a human. And will we be able to get much emotion across with that. They deliberately decided that the first game would be very human-centric and human-focused. It was always going to star a human, I think, but making the vast majority of the characters that you interact with human rather than other species is something that they decided to do up front because they knew that they would be able to get the level of connection and animation with those, and they weren't sure that they could do it with their alien species. Outside of the Asari, who, again, were the most human-like. The Asari were kind of their safety species. 
They were female, uh, which meant that they could have enough female aliens around, and they were also more human, which meant that you could have more interactions with Asari, and then you'd be having interactions with an alien where they could get that same level of animations. Most of the characters you interact with are human in the first game, and then most of the aliens you interact with are Asari, who are the most human of the aliens, and it was just about not knowing what they would be able to do. They get all of these concepts defined over the course of this first year. They're also thinking about the world building, because another thing that is really striking about Mass Effect is that everything in it feels really consistent. There's an overall aesthetic that makes sense. Every last little piece of background scenery or background object is very specifically designed within the aesthetic of the Mass Effect world, and so it it feels like a cohesive universe as a result of that. The main inspiration for that was the legendary visual artist Sid Mead. Sid Mead was a futurist, someone who is trying to extrapolate from today what the worlds of tomorrow might look like. He got his start in automotive design back in the mid-20th century. But then in the late 1970s, he transitioned to film. Even if you've never heard of the name Sid Mead, if you're a sci-fi fan, you know the work of Sid Mead, because he was the concept artist on, on a few little movies called Star Trek The Motion Picture, Blade Runner, Tron, and Aliens. Just a few small flicks that came out in the, uh, the late 70s and uh, early 1980s. So he's the reason that we have the cinematic masterpiece that is the Vigor Cloud. Exactly. He was the creator of Viger, amongst uh, many other things. Because, yeah, Star Trek The Motion Picture has a lot of problems, a lot of problems. But the imaginative visual design was certainly not one of those problems. (laughs) He was known for his elongated forms, his curved lines, really poppy colors. He worked the paint he worked it, he would have colors that really, really popped in his art. Basically, look at any random assortment of Sid Mead futuristic paintings, and you'll see Mass Effect in there. I mean, the design of the vehicles, the design of the buildings, the design of the weapons, the designs of the objects and technology, it's all largely spinning out from Sid Mead. That is the vision of the future they chose, and then they applied that very uniformly across the entire game because they wanted to make this feel like a believable, cohesive universe. They didn't want this weird design here, this weird design there, and it just starts to feel like a hodgepodge. Then when it came to the architecture, Mead was a big influence on some of the architecture, like on some of the tall skyscrapers and and whatnot, but the other major influence on the architecture was a Spanish architect by the name of Santiago Calatrava. Calatrava is most known for his bridges and his transportation hubs and his museums that he's designed. The thing about Calatrava's work is that he does a lot of work in concrete, which makes sense uh, with the bridges and stuff, and he does a lot of work in making forms seem very organic. He uses a lot of curves, a lot of sweeping forms in order to create these things that look very, very organic. Delicate arches are another thing that he's known for. 
So a lot of the design of the Prothean architecture in the game, the precursor race, and all of this is really taken from these kind of curved organic forms of Calatrava. And again, this is coming from the designers themselves saying this in some of the interviews I've talked about, that these were some of their main inspirations. That's kind of where the world building comes from, and they're, they're very, very careful and deliberate in their world building. More so, I think, than a lot of games are at the time. Then when it came time to shape the organization of the people in this universe, you know, how these different species interact, what the government is, all of this kind of thing, they were mainly inspired by a lot of the sci-fi that they enjoyed at the time. And I think none more so than the sci-fi series Babylon 5. You were never a big Babylon 5 person, were you, Jeffrey? No, but I did listen to you and everyone else talk about it a lot. I have seen some retrospectives about it and some of the interesting concepts there and how it influenced other sci-fi things that came after it. Yeah. That being the fact that you have this central space station that is sort of a way station for all of these different species to be able to interact on a more or less neutral ground situation. Mm-hmm in order to foster trade, communication, sharing of knowledge, solve political and social disputes, whatever. There's a sordid tale of trials and tribulations that go on for five or so seasons. Absolutely. And I consider Babylon 5 to be a, a ambitious but somewhat flawed creation. John Lewis, amongst our friends, was the one who was really, really gung-ho about Babylon 5. But the thing that was interesting about Babylon 5, and, and you've certainly described it accurately, is that it was a serious geopolitical story being told on television in a highly serialized manner at a time when you did not see that. You didn't see serialized television, really, in the mid-1990s when this was on. You didn't see sci-fi trying to tell realistic, gritty stories like that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of other stuff going on, too. There's a lot of action, and then there's, you know, the shadows that are going to come and destroy everything. There's prophecies. I mean, there's a lot of other sci-fi things going on as well. But at its heart, it's this geopolitical story with these various races trying to figure out how to coexist, get along, or in some cases not get along, and exploit each other. With Babylon 5, this kind of United Nations kind of place, essentially, the, the council there, serving as the heart of it. And that was something that was highly unusual in sci-fi at the time. And it was one of the early, early series to use CG on television. And, and the CG is very primitive today, you know, to look back at it. I mean, there are computer games. There are games that have better graphics, you know, than these things now that are supposed to be, you know, realistic. But even though it looks obviously fake to our eyes today, and even, I think, to a degree back then, it's still something that hadn't been done. You know, you had these big fleet battles and, and space actions going on, which you just didn't see on televised sci-fi. So for a certain segment of the sci-fi population, that was an incredibly influential show. It was never more than a cult show, but the cult was really devoted to it. Yeah, you can see a lot of the way the Mass Effect galaxy is shaped coming from there. You have the Citadel, which is the base for all galactic government. 
which is controlled by a council made up of the most powerful and influential races, with other races being kind of affiliated and having an advisory role, but not being able to make final decisions. Very similar to how you have the five major races in uh, the Babylon 5 universe, and then you have the minor affiliated races, and it's really the five races making all the decisions. It's not a unified galactic government in that case. As I said, it's more like a United Nations setup. But the idea is still the same, that you have this space station where all the races come together and make decisions that affect the entire galaxy. Another thing that is very central to the Babylon 5 story is that humanity is relatively new on the scene, and humanity is on the rise as an interstellar power. And the series is as much about humanity's rise in this system as it is about exploring this galaxy, and that's very much the same way that Mass Effect is. Humans have just been part of the galactic community for less than a century, and they are fast beginning to dominate in a way that has a lot of the other species rather frightened. That comes from that. Then you also have a prophesized ancient evil, the Shadows, that are about to return and want to uh, destroy everything and everybody which is very much the Reaper threat in Mass Effect, the central idea. And uh, spoilers for a decade-plus-year-old series, you've been warned. The plot largely is based around these ancient machines, the Reapers, who it turns out are actually wiping out all civilization in a cycle of every 50,000 years. They're actually the ones that are behind all of the advanced technology, the Mass Effect relays that allow people to move between systems instantaneously and not have to worry about all that relativity crap that you were uh, talking about before, for the Citadel itself, and a lot of the advanced technology that allow these races to uh, become starfaring. Therefore, because they have created this transportation network, it guarantees that the species of the galaxy evolve along paths that they want, and they make them resilient enough that they kind of operate entirely on their own. You don't need to understand them to use them. So the species just kind of get comfortable with that. They never really learn too much how it works. And then the Reapers come in and they have a system where they can basically take control of everything. When they arrive, shut everything down, cut off all interstellar transport, and uh, then basically harvest all of the worlds one by one for whatever their purpose is in doing that. More on that part of things later. That's very similar to the Shadow Threat. So Babylon 5 provided a lot of the framework, and Preston Wadamaniak was especially a, a huge fan of Babylon 5, the lead designer, and so you can see that. Now, they're all big fans of all of the sci-fi of the 80s, uh, of the Terminators and the Blade Runners and the Aliens and all of that. So they're definitely also taking from other places, and, I, and some of it's very obvious. I mean, I haven't seen interviews on the, some of these, but it's, it's obvious. They also have the Geth which are very much based on the whole Battlestar Galactica thing of we created artificial intelligence, we in this case not being humans, but the Quarians, another species, we created artificial intelligence, they got more sophisticated, they rebelled and took over all of our planets and forced us to wander the galaxy in a fleet of ships. That's the Geth Quarian thing in a nutshell. You have a sentient bug race, the Rachni, there was centuries ago uh, a devastating conflict with them. 
they're pushed to extinction, but it turns out that, you know, things aren't necessarily as simple as they appear, and they weren't necessarily just this uh, warmongering, going to wipe out everything threat, and this has echoes of both starship troopers by Heinlein, with the bugs having their nests uh, deep underground, but also Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, with the idea that this race is then hunted to complete extinction, and then the main architect of that extinction, uh, Ender, is very regretful afterwards, but one egg survives, and uh, the species is able to carry on, just as the rachni, it turns out there's one queen egg, and, and then the rachni repopulates. So you can see the influences from all across sci-fi, and of course, Star Trek was an influence as well. Even though you know the Babylon Five aspect is a bigger presence, you know Star Trek's an influence. There's lots of influences from throughout sci-fi, but all shaped by the designers and the writers into something that was unique to their game. And it's because they took a whole year to do that that they could do this in such a believable manner. Now, one thing that was very difficult for them to come up with was a name for the project. It took a long time. They came up with dozens of names, and they couldn't come up with any that they liked. They thought maybe something with age. They eventually had Dragon Age under development, so they were thinking maybe Space Age. There were also the old Sierra games that were all linked by Quest, King's Quest, Police Quest, Space Quest. They were like, maybe something with Quest in it. They had the Citadel, and so they were thinking maybe something that focused on the Citadel or something like that. So there was Optagon and Oculon, Star Citadel, BioWar was one they thought of just to be cute because the company's BioWare. They knew they had this element zero, so like, do we use that in the name? I mean, they were coming up with all sorts of names. They really honed in on two things, which makes sense because it's a two-word title. One is that they knew they were going to have this fifth fundamental physical force that Element Zero is able to manipulate. In the real universe, uh, at least as far as we've discovered, you have your gravitational force, your electromagnetic force, and your strong and weak nuclear forces. They knew that there was going to be a fifth force essentially manipulated by element zero so that this was an effect. You know, you're affecting something. So they started thinking of names with the word effect. The epsilon effect, for instance, is one that they came up with. I think just because it sounded cool together. Then the other thing, one of the sources, another source that Casey Hudson was really looking at, because they were looking at a lot of artistic, futuristic works because they wanted to create this coherent universe. Another book that he was particularly fascinated with was a book called Mass, which was a collection of the art of another kind of futuristic, or futurist, I mean, artist by the name of John Harris. The reason it's called Mass is he was big into really huge, massive structures, things that were just impossibly huge, so huge that you can't even imagine being able to build them in real life. I don't think his art style necessarily was so influential compared to Calatrava or to Mead, but this idea of massiveness and this idea of mass, you know, the name of this book was something that 
Hudson just wouldn't leave his mind. And so the word mass was coming up all the time. Just to interject here, I'm looking up some of the images of John Harris's mass and it evokes a lot of the imagery and sort of the mindset of Mass Effect. Uh-huh. You have massive planet that is near another planet. You have the giant obelisk on a plateau that's overlooking some crevasse or something. Mm-hmm. You have these huge floating citadel spaceship things where you can't even fully understand the scale. Yeah. You have what looks like a very cuboidal Grand Canyon thing with a bridge that was partially made between the two, but it has this breakout in the middle of it, so you can't cross anymore. I will put this in the show notes, but I can really see where a lot of that influence comes from. Mm -hmm. This is very interesting artwork for something that is just right up science fiction's alley. Yes. You know, they were trying to come up with all of these different names and to make one of those obscure references to a certain author that we like to make. Basically, the word mass was floating through everyone's brains looking for something to connect to. And then the word effect was floating through people's brains looking for something to connect to. Finally, it wasn't Hudson or any of the members of the team, but actually the BioWare co-founder Greg Zeschik that said, what about mass effect? And everyone liked it. That's how they came up with the name. It harkens back to the central idea that altering mass is a central element of the game and that they're having this effect on this fundamental force in the universe. So mass effect. So there you have it. Bonus points if you get the references, as always. So yeah, so they get this all together and then they have to actually build this thing. In the past, BioWare had used its own engines, very famously the Infinity Engine, and they were in the process of making their own engine for 3D games as well, for like Neverwinter Nights and and Jade Empire coming up. Mass Effect fell in a really weird spot where they didn't have their 3D engine really ready to go yet, and of course they couldn't just take the Infinity Engine and slap 3D on it and say, congratulations, you're 3D, that doesn't work well. Even though they would use their own engines in the past and their own engines in the future for Mass Effect, they decided that they had to license an engine in order to get this thing done. So they went to two companies. They went to Valve with their Source engine, and they went to Epic with their Unreal engine. This is a period of time, you know, we talked about how engine licensing wasn't really done before the mid-90s with id. We talked about that in our recent id episodes. By this time, licensing is a common thing, but the idea that you build your business around licensing an engine is still not quite fully formed yet. What I mean by that is id would license its Wolfenstein engine or its Doom engine or its Quake engine. They'd basically be like, hey, here's our engine. Use it, play around with it, have fun with it, do what you want with it. You know, when we have updates for it, we'll let you know. That's very different from kind of the modern way of doing things, which is, here's our engine, here's all our support tools for the engine, here's our dedicated liaison to you that will help you with everything in the engine. The idea is, we exist to serve you in every aspect of this engine. That's the epic model. We don't just put out an engine other people can use. We do everything in our power to make you comfortable with the engine, to learn the engine, to want to keep using the engine going forward. Valve was more of the old school id kind of thing. So they were basically like, okay, here's the source engine. Go have fun. Do whatever you want with it. You're good. 
Whereas Epic was like, here's our Unreal Engine, and here's the version we're currently working on, because Unreal 3, which is what Mass Effect uses and what so many games in that generation of consoles used, was still under development at this time. Because again, we're talking years before the Xbox 360 was even released, let alone the PS3. They were more like, okay, here's the engine, we're building it, let's work together, here's all the support tools we have, we'll have constant communication, and all of this. And so they were like, okay, then we'll use the Unreal 3 engine, because we're going to get a whole lot more support on this. I don't have a lot of details on the building of the game, really no details on the building of the game and the engine. The fascinating thing is they were in a symbiotic relationship at this time. Unreal 3 was being built primarily for Gears of War, another uh, classic launch near launch, launch, whatever title for the Xbox 360, but also being built with the idea that it would be licensed to others as well, not just for Gears of War. Then you had Bioware using Unreal 3 very early on to build Mass Effect. These were similar games in some ways. They're both over-the-shoulder shooting games with a cover system. But of course, Gears of War is a pure shooter, while Mass Effect is layering a lot of RPG systems on top of that. The Unreal Engine wasn't perfectly suited for an RPG. Plus, the Unreal Engine was still under development, which means it was changing. I mean, the Xbox 360 was still under development. The target platforms were still under development. So not only were the Epic people figuring out still what they wanted Unreal 3 to do, they were still having to make updates as they got more information on their target platforms as well. They entered into this kind of symbiotic relationship where the Gears people, the Epic people would improve something, and then the Mass Effect people would have to get the latest update and scramble sometimes for months to update what they're doing to the latest. Or sometimes the Bioware people would discover bugs or discover features that they wanted and would hard code themselves. And then they would show Epic what they were doing, and then Epic would incorporate some, not all, but some of what they were doing into their builds. It did lead to a fairly lengthy development process, though, because they did so much custom stuff to adapt it to an RPG that they would change the engine a lot, and then a new build of the core engine would come out, and then all of those changes that they did, they would have to re-implement sometimes in the new core build. So, But this was kind of the cycle of building out the game. The one thing that was truly interesting on the development side and very unique to this was, of course, the patented innovation that the Bioware people came up with, which is the dialogue wheel. That's the one real gameplay area that we want to focus a little bit of time on. As we said at the top, the goal was to make this cinematic. Everything just needs to keep moving forward like a good space opera, like a Star Wars. Star Wars wasn't an influence in terms of so much the world building and that kind of thing and the technology, but it was certainly an influence in how you have a cinematic, truly cinematic sci-fi experience. You know, George Lucas, who was never much of one for directing people, the running joke is that when he was directing the first Star Wars movie, just about the only feedback that the actors would get after a take from George Lucas, who is not into the people aspect of directing, would be faster, more intense. Mass Effect needed to essentially be faster and more intense than previous RPGs were. Nothing slowed down an RPG more than conversations. Because, of course, RPGs are all about choice, so they want to give you options. So the way RPG conversations worked in most Western RPGs, which are more about that conversation choice than Eastern RPGs are, 
is that a character talks a bunch of words at you. Then you get a dialogue box that opens and you'll have two, three, four, 20 choices. You'll get a sentence or two that is what your character says in response. That's usually not voiced because the idea is that, you know, you're the protagonist, I guess. So they want you to hear it in your head in your own voice. So you'll click on your choice and then the other character will start talking again. This kills forward momentum. I mean, it's, it's fine for an RPG, but it's not fine for cinematic because it kills forward momentum because you get this box opening up, then you have to stop. You have four or five, six sentences you need to read one at a time, carefully consider. Then once you give a response, like I said, it's usually not voiced, and then the other character starts talking again. It is not cinematic at all. So they knew they, of course, still wanted conversation and choice and all of this kind of thing. But how do you do that without killing the cinematic nature? And so they invented the dialogue wheel. What that basically is, is as the other person is still finishing up their conversation, you get this little wheel in the middle of the screen that will have several one or two word options. And you can rotate between them using your analog stick, your mouse, whatever you're playing with. You can pick one of those while the other person's conversation is still in ending because they're short enough prompts that you don't have to think about it too much. You pick it while the other person's still talking. So by the time they're done, your character starts their response fully voiced based on what you chose, and you have a seamless conversation. Now, if you want to stop and consider, you still can. It's not like after a certain amount of time, you run out of time and he just chooses a response for you. So you can still take time, but you also have an ability to make the conversations much more seamless. Even though the responses that you get are just a few words, you know, one to three or four words in length instead of whole sentences, they, on the whole, you occasionally get surprised, but on the whole, they do a good job of giving enough context there that you kind of have an idea of what the response is going to be. They always try to put different choices in the same places on the wheel because you can be anywhere around the circle. So they'll often put things where you're just getting additional information in one part of the wheel. They'll often put decisions that are, quote, good decisions, paragon decisions in one location, renegade decisions in another location. Consistent placement combined with the visual cues of just those couple of words is usually enough to figure out what's going to happen when you say your next thing without getting bogged down in reading whole sentences of responses. So that's one of the real core gameplay innovations that has continued to spread far beyond there. Since the dialogue wheel is patented, most companies come up with their own methods of achieving the same result so that they don't have to pay royalties on the patents. But still, this idea that you have an easy-to-use, quick system to choose dialogue responses, and then having those dialogue uh, responses fully voiced is something that Mass Effect was a real pioneer of. I'm just going to have to press X to doubt that, Alex. <laughs> oh, dear. We've talked about the world. We've talked about the gameplay. We've talked about the systems. The one thing that we really haven't talked about is the main character. Who is going on all of these adventures? The answer to that question is quite simply Jack Bauer. When they were creating their protagonist, even before they knew that his name would be Commander Shepard or her name would be Commander Shepard, they knew that they wanted a character that could go anywhere in the galaxy and basically do anything, just like his inspiration of Starflight. 
they wanted a premise that allowed you to explore, to go out, to have adventures, to do whatever, but have it make sense in the context of their world, because they're trying to make this a believable, cohesive, lived-in world. So they decided that the only way that you could really do that is by having this law enforcement kind of character that has special prerogative to do whatever is necessary to get the job done, very much like Jack Bauer in the television series 24. There's also a little bit of James Bond influence, uh, they've said as well, but I really think Jack Bauer was the big one. Jack Bauer is a guy that goes out and does whatever is necessary to complete his mission, no questions asked, very little oversight from his superiors, just does what's necessary. So they came up with this idea of the branch of Special Tactics and Reconnaissance, or the Spectres, these uh, special agents of the Citadel Council who are basically above the law. You know, they answer only to the Council, as long as everything they do is advancing the Council's agenda. They're basically allowed to do whatever they want, whenever they want, to get their job done. That's entirely Jack Bauer. The other thing that they wanted to make sure to do with this is, you know, KOTOR had a morality system where near the end of the game kind of had to choose whether you were embracing the light side or the dark side of the force. A, a very obvious thing to have in a Star Wars RPG focused on Jedi and Sith. They wanted to bring over a similar kind of morality system and similar need for choices. But they wanted it to be more complex. They didn't want it to just be good, evil, light, dark, especially since your character was going to be a hero. Going too dark wouldn't be a good thing. They didn't want to just have a choice or two at key points in the game. They wanted your choices in the game to impact not only across the entire game, but across the entire projected trilogy. Again, big ambitions. In order to do that, they looked again at 24 and Jack Bauer. Because Jack Bauer, throughout each season of 24, which, as the name implies, each season takes place over a period of exactly 24 hours. We just don't worry about when he goes to use the bathroom. Don't worry about it. It takes place over the course of 24 hours. And Jack Bauer usually has to make really hard, tough decisions. Decisions where there is no right answer. Decisions where helping somebody hurts somebody else. Decisions where doing this sacrifices that. So they really wanted to make a game that was based around hard choices. It wasn't so much that they wanted those choices to be good versus evil, as they wanted those to be choices between doing things in a way that breeds harmony and consensus and for the greater good, and being decisions that can be harsh and arbitrary but are necessary to get the job done. So they called that Paragon and Renegade rather than good, evil, light, dark, because it isn't so much about are you the hero or the villain of the story, it's about do you do things in a way that tries to be conciliatory and tries to take into account the, the needs and feelings of others, or do you just go and break everything everywhere you go? So Paragon versus Renegade. And they wanted these choices like Jack's choices in, in 24 to be really, really tough. Just in the first game. You have the choice uh, with the Rachni, this uh, insectoid race that was wiped out centuries ago, but has survived in the form of this one queen egg that is now being used as a broodmare in order to create new Rachni to potentially use as weapons. 
you spend the entire mission on the planet Novaria fighting against these Rachni, which you've been told already, if you've been following along and with all the lore and everything, you've been told already were a super dangerous species that was a threat to all galactic civilization and needed to be wiped out. So you've got that background, and then you spend all your time fighting these Rachni on Novaria, and then at the very end, you come face to face with the Rachni Queen. The Rachni Queen tries to explain to you, it's like, no, you don't understand something. We don't know exactly what happened centuries ago, but something weird happened where we were manipulated into doing this and we're not really warlike. Yes, you've been fighting my children, but they didn't develop properly because they were separated from me. They were basically mindless. This is not the Rachni. Will you doom my race to extinction again and kill me, or will you take my word that this isn't really what we're like, and if you let me go, we will go and rebuild our civilization somewhere in secret and peace? Then they give you the decision. Do you kill the Rachni Queen or save the Rachni Queen? It's not a good-evil dichotomy, because, yes, being responsible for the re-genocide of an entire race is dark— but the reason you would be doing it is because you're afraid that you'll have another Rachni war in the future and that billions of people will die and perhaps civilization will collapse. So you're weighing, do I kill the species now with the potential of saving billions of lives or do I let them live because every species deserves a chance and genocide is wrong? That's a heavy choice. It is. And that's always a really fascinating thing that you can put into science. Mm -hmm. Boiler for Strange New Worlds of Star Trek. A case of that comes up in an episode there where a person goes back in time and has to decide, does she save Khan Noonien Singh from being murdered? Or does she yep. let him continue on? If he lets him live, he leads to World War III, genocide, but eventually leads to the formation of the Federation. If she lets him get killed, yeah, he saves all the things, but then the Federation doesn't come about. So in the future, humanity is just off on his side doing a thing and does not work with other races when galactic wars come out. And then mm -hmm. they're sitting on their own having to fight while Vulcans and other races get annihilated by the Romulans. It's just crazy. Yep, exactly. On a more personal note, you have to make an agonizing choice with the character of Rex, who's a Krogan mercenary. The Krogan, for those that don't know, are a species that have been affected by a biological weapon because they were very warlike and they bred very quickly. They were uplifted to destroy the Rachni, and then they started trying to take over the galaxy. So they were hit with a bioweapon called the Genophage that basically rendered them not entirely sterile, but brought their numbers under control in such a way that they would only breed slowly and wouldn't be able to overtake the entire galaxy. Well, the unintended consequence of that, the powers that be against they're not evil, they just saw this as stabilizing a population. But the way it works is that only one in a thousand pregnancies are viable. Most babies are born stillborn. Because they breed so rapidly, that's not going to cause the extinction of their race. That's still enough births that their species can continue to thrive. But the problem is they didn't take into account the psychological impact of having thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and millions of dead babies born every year. So even though it didn't technically lead to a decline in population, 
the Krogan became so fatalistic because all of that death is hard to deal with that they basically started going into irreversible decline because of the psychological impacts of the genophage. It's, it's pretty monstrous. The enemy in the game, Saren, at one point comes up with essentially a cure for the genophage, but it's not really a cure because as part of the process is it basically makes them slaves to him, the way the cure works, because it uses Reaper technology. Still, a cure is a cure, and, and Rex, the Krogan, when he learns about this on the planet where it's being made and learns that you have to go in to destroy it to kind of help save the galaxy, he is not happy with this. Because even though it's not perfect, it's a chance for his people to live again. And so you have a, a confrontation with him. If you have high enough Paragon points in the morality system, you can talk him down and make him okay with going in and destroying it. But if you don't, there's a possibility that you have to kill him for the greater good. So you have to make this decision on, do I kill this character that I've potentially grown attached through throughout the game? Because this is in the, the latter part of the game where this happens. Do I kill my friend for the greater good? You know, these are the kind of tough decisions, both galaxy-wide and personal, that the game makes you make. Of course, you also have to, at one point, choose which of your squad mates to sacrifice. Uh, your two first squad mates in the game, Ashley and Caden, who you spend the whole game with, at one point you have to choose one of them to die, and, and there's no saving them, unless you go cheat and, you know, use the Vermeer Savior mod. But, you know, you have to kill one of them, because they're on two different missions. Both are super critical to winning, to blowing up this genophage cure. You only have enough time to save one of them, but they both need to be where they are for the mission to be successful. They don't give you an option. Unlike with Rex, they don't give you an option where you can save the day and save both of them. You have to choose one that dies. It's about making these hard choices and then carrying the consequences of those choices through this entire trilogy. You know, they do all the work on this game. They get it done. They have to crunch horrible hours, as so many do. They dump the multiplayer along the way. They have to cut stuff. There's other stuff they cut too, but the main thing is they cut this multiplayer element because there's just no time to do that. They do get the game out in November of 2007, exclusive for the Xbox 360 because Microsoft is the publisher. The game is a pretty big hit. It's not perfect. We'll get into that a little bit later. But it definitely strikes a chord. Within three weeks, it sold over one million units. We don't know the final sales necessarily, but it, it was one million in three weeks, 1.6 million within six weeks, and it definitely crossed the two million threshold. That's a good success for an RPG in that time period. Do you happen to know the marketing behind it? Because obviously you don't get that unless you really pushed the game to say, hey, you want to go play this game? It got a lot of buzz is really what it was. It's, it's not necessarily that there was a huge marketing push behind it, like in terms of commercials or whatnot. Mm -hmm. They brought it to E3 for the first time in 2000. Well, they announced it at E3 in 2005. They brought a demo for the first time in 2006, and it just got a lot of buzz out of E3. It won some Best of Show awards. And so it was that E3 coverage and the E3 demos that I think really pushed it forward. And of course, it had Microsoft uh, behind it. 
those are good numbers, especially when you consider that it was an exclusive to the 360. Now, the 360 was selling a lot better than the PS3, so they were on the more successful of the two consoles. Uh, the Wii doesn't really factor into this kind of uh, conversation. It was never going to be on the Wii. You know, they were on the better of the two consoles to be on, but they were still cut off from part of their market because they couldn't sell to people with PS3. So, you know, 1.6, 2 million, 2.5 million, whatever it ended up with, those are really good figures. So, of course, it was going to continue. That is where we will end part one of the story. In part two, we'll look a little more at the game of Mass Effect itself, what worked, what didn't work, and how they decided to move forward with the trilogy on the basis of that. Because it's an incredibly ambitious product, tracking all of these choices across this game that all then impact the next game, which will also have its own choices that will then impact the next game. It's incredibly ambitious, not to mention this melding of RPG and shooter mechanics, which had not really been done in this way before. So in the next episode, we'll look at that and, and see what worked and, and what didn't and continue the trilogy. This is looking good for two parts, I'm telling you, Jeffrey. If, if you want to give them their odds updates, I, I think two parts is looking uh, better and better at this point. All right, we're going to upgrade that to seven to one, seven to one for three-parters. <laughs> but we'll have to leave you with a very difficult choice, everyone. Do you delete this episode to save space on your listening device or do you keep it there so that you can always listen to They Create Worlds? <laughs> the choice is yours. The choice is yours. Goodbye. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. You can also help by getting the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 